You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, episode 315. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined by Seth Miller and Fosma Moon. Gentlemen. Can you name the 315 area code? Uh, no. upstate, upstate New York. Upstate New York, Syracuse. Oh. oh. It was Not like 15 minutes north of Ithaca, where I went to college, so it was... Uh, my girlfriend for a while lived on 315, and I was in 607. It was very confusing. <laughs> Back when that was a big deal. Yeah, when that mattered. Anyway. I, I remember, you know, Houston Houston used to only have one area code for the longest time. 713? Right? 713, yeah. And uh, when they introduced the new area code, which was 281, people were losing their minds. <laughs> Tended to dialing mandatory. It was an overlay, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they, and they were not excited. <laughs> It was, it was an interesting, I mean, I can't believe we spent so much time talking about area codes on this show now. Um, we made dots, lines, <laughs> destinations, and area codes. We have to rename ourselves. Um, but the if early on, it was all splits, not overlays. Yeah. And I don't know if there was a technical reason for it or not, but it was definitely a situation where, like, you could keep your phone number, but you got a different area code, or you got, uh, or you just, you know, whatever, like, they, the way they split them up. And then all of a sudden, someone realized, like, we could just do overlays and not change everybody's number. But if we do that, everything becomes 10 digit dialing instead of 7 versus 10 yep. and i think there was at some point they must have just realized like you know what it's all 10 digit for most people anyways at this point let's just be done with it yep. Yep. it varied state by state so when they started rolling it out a lot of people initially they always split yep. then when they started concerning uh overlaying certain states were more amenable to it and forced it while others refused uh until eventually it got forced through everywhere hmm. yeah. and then there's a couple states that are still a single area code like that, mine. Now, how do you know if an area code is older versus the newer? Zero or one in the middle digit. Exactly. And you know why. Really? Yeah, so the, the original, and we, we talked about this a little bit last week, the original area codes were, you had it was all rotary phone, but you had the one or the zero uh, for the dialing. And I guess it's because, Foz, does this go back to our Klondike 5 conversation? They didn't have letters on them? I don't. I don't think we had a Klondike Five conversation. That was me and you. That was, that was me and Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, God, you know, I barely remember what the, how an episode went thirty seconds after I said the, it. But. The zero and the one is because the old telephone equipment wouldn't recognize anything other than the zero one in the middle. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, but those those also were the digits that didn't have numbers on them. So or didn't have letters on them. I'm sorry. So interesting. Anyway. Yeah. We got some follow up. Uh, yeah. So speaking of things, I don't remember thirty seconds after I said them. <laughs> got a couple things wrong last week. Um. Thank you to a couple of listeners for pointing them out. Uh, Lichtenstein uses the Swiss franc, not the euro. And so when uh, we were talking about collecting euro coins and getting them from each country, I believe it was San Marino um, where I collected the coin. And I'm, that's entirely possible. I'm wrong about that, too. But who the hell knows? Uh, um, I, it happened, I swear. Uh, and we talked about the rollover with Alaska, not Alaska, American. Uh, doing rollover and suggested that they might be the first to roll over the earnings into next year. And it turns out Delta had announced that way back in April, long enough ago that we'd already forgotten about it. So you have two airlines now that for the rest of the year, anything you earn miles wise will count towards status in 2021 earning for 2022 status year. Oh, interesting. So do you think uh, United will eventually follow behind this? No. No? Why, why not? I think it's too late to announce it at this point mm-hmm. for it to make sense. Like, could they retroact and be like, and hey, everybody, we're going to give you credit for everything? Perhaps. But I don't think they'll go out of their way to announce it as a promotion to try to attract traffic. Also, I think there's an interesting dichotomy in terms of how airlines are trying to use their loyalty programs to attract traffic versus just make money. And mm. I'm not well, sure United's doing it particularly well with either. I don't know if any of them are doing it really well with either. But mm. anyway. 
Well, what were you going to say, Foss? I was going to say, you know, they allegedly reduced the thresholds for the year. But when I look in the app, because I've hit my 1K requirement from a lifetime perspective, it still wants me to make $21,000 in purchases. You can still do that. Hmm? you got plenty of time. Yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> but it hasn't, the point being that they haven't actually dropped it for everyone. Yeah, interesting. Um, new topics. I think the big news that everyone saw this week was Singapore's Newark Singapore flight uh, is actually being moved over to JFK. Uh, nonstop. Nonstop JFK Singapore. No need to go through Frankfurt. Um, and this happens November? Is that November that 7th, I think, is the first flight. Yeah. yeah. But allegedly, the Frankfurt flight's going to come back. Well, I think it has. To, I mean, I think it's filling in the the extra days. You can tell they used the flight number for the Newark nonstop. Not the they used twenty three twenty four, not twenty five twenty six. But if you go look in spring, you'll start seeing both the nonstop and the yeah um, one stop. Yeah, I I wonder how much the nonstop went to Newark because they couldn't get slots at JFK versus they wanted the uh, diversity. I have to assume it's the former, not the latter. I think it was a lot of it was driven to Newark because of um, pharma. Interesting, because they—I mean—they definitely said in the. That's the other thing about this bringing the nonstop back is they said it's going to be driven a lot by cargo initially because passengers can sort of transit but can't really stop in Singapore uh, for the most part without quarantine at least right now and some other things. But um, they specifically called out the cargo needs as a reason to move it to JFK, and car and pharma was one of the specific cargos listed. So. But pharma manufacturing is different than pharma business travelers. Ah, so you think it's the difference is moving the goods versus the people? Yeah, because the pharma yeah. built the pharma companies were headquartered in Jersey, so it's, that was people. But now manufacturing is out on Long Island. Uh, I think it might actually be connecting traffic because I can't imagine that JFK makes more sense to truck cargo in than Newark from anywhere but Long Island or the city. Hmm. Connection. And it's not like Manhattan has huge manufacturing resources. Right. So, so it has to be – it could be – it might be related to a lot of the traffic coming from Puerto Rico because there's a lot of pharma marketing uh, – manufacturing in Puerto Rico now. Yeah, absolutely. But a lot of that's carried in by United on the cargo uh, – the climate-controlled wide bodies. Right. You've got one flight from Newark, versus how many flights do you have in and out of JFK? Yeah, but, but, but climate-controlled. But I think there's more cargo operations in and out of JFK, too. Yeah. I don't know. I, anyway, I don't know. The nonstop's coming back. <laughs> well, and, and so here's my question. Like, they're using the ultra, the, the non-ULR version of the A350. Yes. Um, which is an interesting change because it means there's true economy now on the flight rather than just a premium economy in business. Um, and looking at the numbers, there's more, if I remember correctly, it's, either, it's very close or even more economy class seats on the regular 350 layout than total seats on the ULR layout of just business and premium economy. Really? Well, I think it's like 153 to 160 or something like that. I mean, it, let's say they sold it to capacity. Could they even do the flight? They, I don't think they could, right? I don't think they can make it. Uh, with no cargo, yeah. maybe. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah. But let's be honest, nothing's selling to capacity right now. <laughs> Unless you're on a United flight. Then, even then, those. I mean, I've seen photos. People are like, yeah. my flight's full. <laughs> Uh, Occasional individual flights on average, though. I mean, United, I think, had a 43% load factor last month or something stupid like that. The, tra the transcons are definitely full. Killing it. They're killing it. Well, I mean, when you go from 12 to 4. <laughs> um, the other big news is Cathay Pacific is killing off their Cathay Dragon brand. Uh, and this is sad, I guess. I mean, Cathay Dragon's kind of their low-cost, no-frills carrier, right? Well, Hong Kong Express is technically a low-cost carrier. Um, the 
Cathay Dragon was Dragon Airways or some Dragon Express, something like that. It was a different airline that they bought out to reduce competition. And they sort of forced all of the – not forced. They moved a lot of the mainland China traffic that way. Mm. Um, and I still don't know if there's a necessary split between mainland China traffic and not across operators and how the sort of uh, – the route authorities go. I know a lot of the route authorities are assigned to Cathay Dragon, and they're going to have to try to bring them back to either Hong Kong Express or Cathay Pacific Parent, right? But it's it's not like the old days where you had KLM Asia with different planes dedicated to go to mainland China versus uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong. So I don't know. And, uh, United and, Load Factor was just under fifty percent for the quarter. And the the thing with the Cathay Dragon is they also had three twenties and three twenty ones, right? Yeah, single aisle aircraft. So they're keeping the uh, like 10 training pilots on, but all the other pilots are being furloughed and are terminated. And those pilots are going to train the legacy Cathay Pacific staff. However many of them are going to switch over to flying single aisle planes. Hmm. So there, it sounds like some of those aircraft are going to shift to the Cathay Pacific family, um, which if you look at the order book, they've got 321 Neos. There's two or three painted ready, like basically ready for delivery. They, they were ready for delivery at the beginning of the year. They have the new business class flatbeds and everything. And then, you know, shit went bad. And so they delayed and deferred and whatever. But there's there's like ready for delivery now. And they're waiting to figure that out. But they're they got the red tail, not the green tail. So this one's going to repaint that at some point. Hmm. So and, no. and so, and so, I mean, Cathay doesn't operate any single aisles. Sorry, Foz. Right. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, it's, yeah. it'll be a big change. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess the question is, will they bring back people that have been furloughed to do the single aisle on the Cathay side, or are they going to demote people? I would assume. I believe it. I mean, demote is a relative term, but there, there'll be a new there'll be new bids opening. Is my understanding for people to convert? Uh, I think that they don't. They don't expect to fly the full wide body fleet for some time. Right, they're not gonna. They're gonna. If they're gonna operate a quarter of capacity for the next six months or so, they think Q four, Q one will be a quarter of capacity of twenty nineteen levels, and maybe if they're lucky, fifty percent by the end of twenty twenty one. So let's assume that it's they're gonna have plenty of people sticking or hanging out with nothing to do. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, just I, I, in your opinion, I mean, this just makes me question everything about. Uh, the, the future of airlines, right? Because they, they're failing. Uh, their low-cost carrier is gone now, or one of their low-cost or single-out carriers, whatever you want to call it. Um, how, how does the rest of the industry survive if, if you're, you know, the predictions are right that 2022 is when we'll see an actual return to normal as far as travel? Well, it's not going to be 2022 yet. I mean, it's all relative. Uh, yeah. I mean, define, return to normal versus return to old levels. Um, yeah, I... A lot of airlines are going to fail, or they're going to need to get further further bailed out. But it's bad. It's a very bad situation right now. The industry is more or less, a, I mean, the whole global travel economy, but beyond that, you know, a narrow part of that that we talk about more as airlines is a disaster. And they're not going to, not all of them are going to survive. And IATA and other groups are begging for money to help keep them funded. I would argue that it's, you know, some need it more than others, and to what level is an interesting discussion. Can you, right? I mean, Cathay got $5 billion U.S. dollars worth of funding and is still cutting massively. Mm. To what level are, and they were much smaller than the U.S. carrier, so, like, who also got billions of dollars? Like, to what level are they planning to ride this? Singapore Airlines got a ton of money. I think it was, mm. like, 8 or $10 billion with stock issues and government support and everything else. And, like, to what level is that, you know, trying to just ride this out versus... Um, you know, 
completely restructuring and like how much can you scale back and hope to recover later? Yeah. Um, spirit <laughs> just, uh, I don't know why that made me laugh. Spirit is getting a, a new frequent flyer program. Free spirit. I mean, it's the same name, but they've updated it dramatically. Good. Bad? I think so. Mm. Like, so I wanted to write the story of like spirit got his big boy pants on. Uh, I was going to sort of be my headline and decide that was too condescending. Um, but I can say it here because not nearly as many people listen to us as, you know, get me in trouble for it. Uh, <laughs> um, no, it's, I, I mean, I, I was able to speak with a couple of the executives about it. And they, they acknowledged to an extent, like, the original Frequent Flyer program wasn't designed for really growing the type of revenue and attractiveness of a Frequent Flyer loyalty program that the airline had morphed into. And it's partly that it's, you know a low-cost carrier, but also partly, like, there is a business traveler segment that sees Spirit as a very viable solution. If you look at how, you know, go back to the 2019 version of it, at least, but, like, how the route map and schedules had evolved, like, the DFW in Detroit and some of the other uh, cities where they had started to sort of expand, they had what amounted to multiple daily frequencies in real business markets. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting challenge of, like... if you look at everything else, like the loyalty program was what was lacking relative to some of the others. And so if you had someone that was, you know, flying every week or for every other week and spending a f- several thousand dollars a year with you, it wasn't a compelling offering. And the new version has two status tiers at $2,000 and $5,000 spent on, on fares. Uh, earning is six points per dollar. I'm not surprising that it's revenue based, but uh, it's double unancillary products. Where some, like, you get, you get a United or, you know, it's like, oh, we might find a way to give you status credit for some of the ancillary spend. Spirit was going into that, you know, from the get-go, you get status credit on the ancillary spend. And you get double bonus point. Like, you get double points on that spend because it's the stuff that's, you know, higher margin and it's worth more to the company to sell it. So you get rewarded for buying it. There's there's some really interesting things that they're doing there. And then if you do get status, the number of fee waivers you get as a gold Mm-hmm. It's like everything. You can book exit seats at. Uh, you can reserve an exit seat at the time of booking for no fee. Uh, free checked bag, free carry on bag, free priority boarding. Like all of those little things that sort of come with elite status are included. And so you know, and I actually asked the guys. Um, when I was talking to them, like, how do you justify this? Like, you you, you make your money on the on the loyalty program or on the ancillaries. All of a sudden, you're giving all this stuff away. Like, how is that going to work? And uh, the, the, he got a, the chief commercial officer, Matt Klein, uh, gave me a, a comment back, a really interesting answer. Is, you know, our belief is that we can create higher engagement with a gold member. We're also going to see higher overall spend and with that member. And through revenue management, we'll, we'll be able to uh, sort of generate higher revenue because it's a, more likely to be a higher spending customer later purchase because of business travel and whatnot. So they'll realize the yield that way. Um, and it's really interesting that these talks about working very closely with revenue management. But, you know, we want people to get to gold. If you get to gold, the overall spend will validate the benefits you earn. <laughs> and, it's, you know, all the airlines, of course, do that uh, or will argue that. But free sna- free drink on board, free snack on board. Like, you get literally one of everything um, except big front seat. <laughs> and they don't one do free flight change too. Yeah, and they don't, but one free flight change, too. It's a really – if they are in the market where you're flying and you're flying – either you're flying them anyways or you're trying to figure out – you know, if it makes sense to you and you are avoiding it because of the loyalty program, uh, the one thing we don't know is what the points are worth. That's a big caveat. Like, they've said cash and points redemption started 1,000 points and revenue redemption started 2,500 points. So you can get sort of like, okay, if you spend $500, you should have enough for a ticket. Um, 
but that's the that's the big question right now. Four hundred didn't change, whatever. Um, to be fair, do we know what any point is worth anymore? It's getting harder. Absolutely. So, but we we literally like they're like, oh yeah, yeah no, we're gonna we'll tell you that in January when the new program's ready or when it goes live. You'll you'll learn. And so that that's a awkward situation. Let's say unfortunate situation. Um, some other, the other one funny thing I thought is they're doing points pooling, uh, so you can like get up to eight people in a group and share your points. Except to be able to start a pool, you have to either have status or hold the credit card. Hmm. Right, so it's they're it's, they're doing it their own way, right? All these little things that like the industry has said, this is smart. This is a good way to work with your customers. Like, and Spirit's like, yeah, uh huh. But we're also still Spirit, right? Like, it's it's a really interesting approach to that. So, and I I didn't actually ask them like, what happens if I have status for the credit card and I start a pool and then I lose it? Can I keep, does the pool stay alive? Like, there's there's a lot of interesting caveats and quirks to that sort of stuff. But uh, it's an interesting program. <laughs> it's it's certainly. Uh, at least worth considering and looking at and like points have a one year expiry now, not 90 days like that alone made the old program stupid. I've earned and lost points. I would fly them once every six or nine months for a while and like, okay, fine. But like I stopped caring about the program because the points were stupid. They, they were of literally no value. And now maybe there's a little bit more value for someone who flies twice a year. It all of a sudden, you know, like Christmas and summer trips to grandma now all of a sudden makes sense. You can you can start to save the points in those scenarios. That's just what I should say. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting program. Hmm. Uh, I'd love to know if any of our listeners will use it or sign up for it. So leave us a comment. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, they were real. I will say we did. It was like a you know video call when we were talking about. It. I'm like, yeah, you know, I have an account with you guys. They're like, oh, and that's what I'm like. Yeah, it has no points in it because you keep expiring. They're like, oh. <laughs> those smiles but I'm like which is fine because you know I, I got the right value for my ticket um, and that's the other thing is in theory the Wi-Fi is going to start to roll out uh, at some point next year uh, which we didn't have in the topic list but the, their their Wi-Fi situation was a, another technical mess and uh, the vendor screwed up pretty badly but uh, the first plane with the new system on it just got installed so uh, they're gonna they're slow rolling it it looks like they're not pushing all hundred-ish planes through right away, but they'll get there. Wow. Um, so Delta and WestJet have tentative approval for their joint venture. Are you excited? Uh, no. <laughs> does, it, does it matter if the border's closed and they continue extending it? Oh, there's that. Um, <laughs> detail number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, minor detail. <laughs> there's actually, but there's also two specific restrictions in the approval uh, that could... I don't want to say completely derail it. I don't think either one's a deal breaker, um, but two interesting things. So one is LaGuardia slots. Uh, when Delta and U.S. Airways traded national for LaGuardia, Delta was required to uh, give up 16 slot pairs. Um, they sold them in two uh, tranches or two pools of eight each. And WestJet was the winner of one of those auctions. And WestJet has been flying those eight slots or eight round trips, eight slot pairs uh, since then. Uh now they're being required to give them up. And to be clear, the pair of airlines is required to give up eight slot pairs with plus or minus 30 minutes of each of the existing WestJet slots. They don't necessarily have to be the WestJet slots. They could be Delta slots, but the situation is required because WestJet won them back in the day. So that 
is, you know, they, they were, WestJet and Delta were trying to argue like, no, because WestJet flies to Tur- uh, LaGuardia and Delta only flies to JFK from Toronto. So it's really, there. you can tell LaGuardia and JFK are completely different markets. It's a completely different competitive market. We just don't have to worry about that. Uh, the DFT saw through that. Uh, thank goodness. I don't want to say not surprisingly, but because uh, nothing surprised me at this point with any of the government agencies. But <laughs> so the DFT saw through that ruse and did is requiring it. Uh, the divestiture there. Uh, Southwest scored a big win because previously the limit, the threshold was you had to be less than a 5% operator to bid for them. And Southwest has like 7 or 8% of LaGuardia slots and negotiated that it should be a 10% now. Uh, so Southwest can bid for the new slots. Um, so, and they, even if, you know, everybody's losing tons of money, Southwest has more cash in the bank. So I will assume that they're going to bid big. Um, the other part though, that is actually arguably more of a challenge to the deal is a requirement that, uh, swoop the WestJet family ultra low cost carrier be excluded entirely from the joint venture deal. (laughs) And so surprise, surprise, I didn't even really think about this at the time. Swoop was included. Uh, not by like code share or anything else, but the agreement between WestJet and Delta included caveats limiting the routes and markets Swoop could serve, number of transporter markets, all sorts of stuff, um, and financially too. Like some of the revenue numbers would be shared, but not operational stuff. So mm-hmm. Swoop was legitimately considered part of the deal, um, and the DOT came back and was like, "Yeah, that actually is going to be too anti-competitive. We're not going to allow that." How would, that, how would the low-cost carrier be anti-competitive? Including them. Letting Delta essentially dictate where Swoop could fly would be okay. anti-competitive. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, let's that makes be very sense. clear about my words. <laughs> um, and so one of the challenges with that, though, is like – and Delta and WestJet acknowledge this and the DOT does in this statement as well. Like originally the joint venture was between WestJet Group and Delta, not WestJet Airline and Delta. And effectively there's sort of – the DOT is requiring them to change the named partner – to be WestJet Airlines, uh, and to and acknowledge that yes, they're both managed by the same sort of parent organization, and there's going to be it's hard to truly pretend that everything operates at arm's length, but you got to try harder at that. Hmm. So I right, if I'm Delta and WestJet, I'm annoyed that I got to give up eight slot pairs at LaGuardia, but like, okay, fine, it's relatively small in the grand scheme of things, and you're going to get paid for them anyways. Maybe not quite as much as you would have if this happened like a year ago when everybody was willing to pay, you know, way more money because they had way more money. Um, but like, you're going to get paid for that. OK, fine. But figuring out how to uh, extract swoop from this and sort of run it differently, gets a, it just gets messy to me. I don't know. I feel like it's makes things a little awkward operationally. I mean, is this really the time to be negotiating ATI? Sure. Why not? It seems like it's it's like, you know, the fight of fight for survival. It's just another – it's some complication that doesn't really help the bottom line right now, especially since you can't fly between the two. Fair that you can't fly between them. That makes it harder. I, I would argue, you know, counterpoint there. Like if you've got a sort of desire for uh, – this is a longer-term play, but like why not implement it now, especially if there's no traffic anyways. Like the the cost of implementing it is sort of flipping some switches on booking details that more or less already exist anyways. It's never that easy. Right. There's also the, we're talking about archaic, archaic systems getting closer, and they, if we're not, if there's also you know exposure to uh, revenue from each of the carriers, depending on which side you're looking at it from. But you know, if traffic's not going to rebound for anywhere from two to four years right now, yeah, it, it's a long term play, but it, it might never pay off. And is that a risk you can take in a cash strapped industry? I guess I see it as a relatively cash light risk. 
compared to a lot of other things that could be out there. And like, you can't, you can't afford even in the current environment to stop looking at what the future scenario is going to be. I I agree. I agree. But you know, the airlines as a whole in the last seven months have looked at every little penny they spend. Right. And what is the return that that penny brings back? And I think that's the question. That's the real question is, is there enough return to make sense to do this for something that might not pay for two, four, five, six years. Um, and even then, right, it's not like... Five years, yes. You know, 20 years, maybe not. But it, but even then, right, it's not like we're talking about Air Canada. We're talking about WestJet. It's not like WestJet had that much service compared to Air Canada. So WestJet, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm pulling this from memory now, Air Canada is approximately 45% of the transborder market. United was like 15 or so, or 12. And then combined Delta and WestJet become 26, 27. So it's... And it's and there it's roughly it's a roughly even split like eleven or twelve each maybe thirteen each something like that so it's actually more than you'd think a lot of it's out west uh, not surprising with their Calgary hub um, and it's markets where Delta doesn't have as much capacity now what's interesting and I didn't know this six percent of transborder U.S. Canada traffic is the New York City to Toronto market single route six percent or not single route three routes but six, five routes if you include uh, YTZ. Yeah, if you include Billy Bishop, four routes, because they got New York there also, but then the other three to to uh, Pearson. Yeah, that, it's just an amazing volume of traffic in that market, and it's top dollar spend, too. But something like Calgary-Phoenix, right? Yeah. What does that buy Delta? Onward connections, if the from, ATI. From where? Phoenix? Yeah, from Phoenix. To where are they connecting to? I mean, the Calgary hub is got where all the London Heathrow stuff is. So, so the, the ATI about- doesn't cover... Uh, Transoceanic. It's only U.S. Canada. Well, then forget what I said. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. It's not like Delta has a big footprint in Phoenix or a lot of the Sun destinations. Sure, L.A. Right. But other than that, L.A. and Seattle and Salt Lake. What's the advantage of Delta? Well, I mean, I think I think that it at least don't doesn't it allow Delta to draw some of that revenue from that that route in that wide. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they, that's the whole point. They do share that. There's also a in, really interesting graph um, that was in the. Uh, report, and I didn't include the link to you guys, sorry, um, that I copied out, and it's average fare per, and then average stage length, and uh, United actually draws the highest average fare um, of $296 one way for 1,531 mile uh, distance. WestJet is one, two, three, four, five, sixth in average fare, only beating Porter, and I'm actually surprised Porter is at the bottom, but Porter's average fare is only $126. WestJet's 171 one way. But Porter's average stage length is 400 miles, right? Porter basically flies uh, Billy Bishop to, like, uh, Chicago and to New York and to Boston. And does it at a slight discount, but makes decent money for those short hops on the prop planes. WestJet's $171 is on a 1,500-mile stage length, 1485. So they've got a lot of longer flights. And so there's some interesting challenges math-wise and everybody else is shorter except united which i'm actually not sure how united's is so long i guess too much out of houston up into oil territory i mean yeah, so they, they have san francisco now oh yeah right, san francisco toronto yeah i guess there's a couple of those transconish but yeah anyway um it west jets sort of dollars per mile number is so skewed relative to everything else it, it, to steven's point like what value is there to possibly what value is that to the partnership right um it is questionable if that level of rasm is useful but also clearly they had some plans where they're going to try to flow some of this traffic also is that is that still a WestJet route or is that a swoop route now what uh, phoenix palm springs any of those sun destinations uh, last i remember i mean calgary phoenix was yeah WestJet. i mean some of them will, it, it's going to be a mix is what i'm yeah. sort of yeah. at but 
Um, one question I had about this was, does, I mean, I wonder if Delta's bannings go across to WestJet. <laughs> I mean, Delta released some information that they've, like, they're banning 100 people a month. Yeah. Big for not wearing masks. Um, and I think they're up to, like, 500 now. I think 430 was the number I saw. But yeah. yeah, that's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. So my question is this. Are there, is their number higher than everybody else's? And I think it probably is, because no one else talks about it nearly as much as Delta does. Um, and then is that because Delta's passengers are somehow bigger assholes than the rest of the world? Like, the rest of the United States passengers? Or... Are the other airline like, is everybody just really pissed about having to connect in Atlanta so they won't wear a mask? I don't, I don't get why <laughs> it's so much different. Yeah, I don't know. Do they I mean, like, think that because the seats are blocked, I don't have to wear a mask? Like, it doesn't make sense to me why that's so different. Well, I've, I've long had a standing theory on there's a different class of person for each of the three airlines. You get on a United flight versus an American flight versus a Delta flight, there's a different caliber of person in each one. And you think the Delta caliber is no mask? <laughs> I think so. I mean, there it's a much more southern centric airline. That's true, right? It, it, you have a lot more people with the southeast mentality that get on those planes, and I think that's probably is indicative to the, their customer base and large the majority of their customer base, and that flows through, and that's probably why, right? There's an overlap between that same group of people being very big on anti-mask and vocal about it. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, so. There was an American Airlines flyer. He he actually writes a, a blog uh, about wheelchair access. His name's John Morris. He he runs the uh, what's the name of the website? It's uh, wheelchair, wheelchair, wheelchair travel. I think. Yeah, um, and he was denied uh, his he was denied travel by American Airlines due to his yeah. power wheelchair. Um, and I didn't realize he lived in Gainesville, by the way. I didn't either. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a triple amputee, and he has a very large electric wheelchair that he uses to get around. Must be fair, um, like. It's, it is a motorized wheelchair, but not yeah, unreasonably I mean, large. I mean, it's it's large when you think about yeah. you know, just compared to a, a regular wheelchair. But anyway, it, the point is American uh, – he was flying from Gainesville to Dallas to Roswell, New Mexico. And the, the, that's operated by CR7s and CR9s. And American said, we can't fit it there. Uh, we can't fit it in the aircraft um, it, because it was more than 300 pounds. And that was it. They canceled his ticket. He walked over to Delta, who operates the same types of planes on the routes. Uh, and they said, sure, we'll take it as long as it fits within these dimensions. Um, and so after contacting contacting American, uh, he basically learned that American does not want to carry uh, wheel uh, electric wheelchairs uh, due to um, not wanting to be liable if they break them or damage them in some way. Um, so... So I wonder if this is well, – clearly, let's just say American appears to be very much stupid in this scenario. Um, but I wonder if this is a sort of scenario situation of like unintended consequences of the DOT has started tracking when airlines break wheelchairs. Hmm. And otherwise, you know, like in addition to lost bags and things like that, it's been a year or so now. Um, and one of the things – one of the statistics, and it just came – the most recent numbers just came out again, but like – American has done pretty poorly with that sort of stuff. American has also, especially through its Envoy uh, subsidiary, has lost more bags historically on average than everybody else. So all these sort of not good things. Um, they, should stop, they should stop carrying bags then. Right. So like, well, it's just a situation <laughs> they're like, shit, we keep getting in trouble for this. We're just going to stop. We think we got a way out. Like, in this way, we don't have to worry about screwing it up anymore. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's, it's that's how it reads to me. I'm also terribly cynical and I've had a couple drinks tonight. So um, I may be more I mean, cynical I, than I should be. But it's what it reads like. Kind of makes sense. I just like 
it seems stupid, right? Like if you're not going to carry wheelchairs, which is an essential uh, piece of equipment for a, a subset of the American population to move when they get to their destination, it seems idiotic um, yeah. and, and discriminatory, right? Yes. Like, um, so anyway, I hope American makes, does right with this and makes it right. Um, yeah, so I'm sort of shocked that someone's EXP out of Gainesville. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's how much he flies. That's crazy. It's just like, it's a terrible, it's, it's just a small market for American. I mean, I'm, I'm actually didn't even realize they restarted slash restarted the DFW service, but it used to only be Charlotte for a long time. And then it would like, uh, they added Miami at one point. So DFW helps, I guess, but sort of interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, what else we got here? Let's see. Let's talk about miles and more. Loyalty uh, programs, man. They matter a lot. Y- yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the story? I mean, miles and more subscriptions. What is this? So they've got a new partnership out, um, it's a couple weeks now, but they're basically trying to uh, sell points, and find selling points is not new, they, but this is a subscription model, and so what you do is you pay a certain monthly amount, um, and it's starting right now at about 100 euros a month um, for three or six months, and then you earn, uh, your points that you earn is like double or triple or whatever uh it would have been based on what your flights are. So unlike the U.S. carriers that are like, oh, hey, you're flying this specific route for $100, you'll get an extra 3,000 points or whatever on this route today, you sort of just, you predetermine, like pre-declare, I fly enough, I'm going to collect extra points on all my flights, and I'll get them at a discount because I'm paying the monthly fee. And so it's, and but then it only pays off if you fly. Mm-hmm. Right, so you know, good for the airline, good for the consumer. In theory, obviously, if you don't uh, fly enough, you sort of lose out on the deal. But I just, I don't know, man. I unless you're flying an obscene amount of miles, anyways, um, it just and it, and, it, and they cap the total earnings, so it's like you can't get that much ahead. So the earnings capped at 120,000 miles a year. And I'm trying to, I've got the wrong tab open here. I'm trying to figure where the hell's the numbers. Um, no, 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 no. It's, there it is. Uh, so that would be 170 euros per month. So that's 2,000-ish euros for the year. Pretty spendy. <laughs> so cents per point is 2,000 euros. We'll call it $2,500. That's probably close to the... Yeah, you're still paying... At, the best you can do is two cents a point. So, like, I mean, that's maybe a small discount from the normal purchase rate. Yeah. Right? Three-ish cents. But would why would you... Per, go out of your way to buy points at two cents per mile, and that's the best you can do. Versus sort of, and then you have to guarantee like a one year contract. I, it just, and especially right now when you know, and they're they're trying like as people are starting to fly again, blah 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 blah. blah. Like not enough people are flying that much right now. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't make sense to me. As yeah. a consumer, why would you buy miles? As a general rule, I agree with you. Right, especially if, like in s- small increments, right? It's one thing to buy them in large increments because then you're about to do something or more likely to do something. But in small increments, like it's just throwing money away. I agree. Don't, don't tell Miles and more customers that. I think we are. <laughs> um, Airbus is potentially, potentially increasing production on the A320 family next year from 40 to 47. Ooh. <laughs> is someone going to accept delivery of these planes per month? Yeah, um, they have warned their warned slash asked their suppliers to consider what it would take to sort of support the increased rate output. I don't know who's, who's going to take these planes. 
It's a damn good question. They had a lot of deliveries this week. Breeze? Last week. I don't know. <laughs> no, Breeze is 220s, not the 320s. Oh. Did you guys, speaking of which, did you see the picture of the Delta 320 flying into Atlanta? Sorry, no. uh, 22300 flying into Atlanta? Mm-mm. I'll send you guys a link. There's a overhead shot. Someone got up in a helicopter and like just perfectly framed, perfectly focused, direct overhead shot of the first Delta A22300 landing in Atlanta on its delivery flight from Mobile. It's also the first U.S. manufactured A220 delivery. Uh, it's just such a good picture. Yeah, hopefully they can make it into a wallpaper. That'd be awesome. It's on Twitter. It's probably big enough that you can pull that off. Sweet. Um, yeah, well, I think... I mean, really, Stephen? You're going you're gonna to go with the Delta wallpaper? I, I, I'll go, you know, any kind of any kind of aircraft delivery wallpaper I'm good with. Okay. Anything that makes me feel like I'm not sitting in a home office. All well, he's got the United delivery for his dartboard. That's no. That's where I. That's where I shoot my BB gun. <laughs> it's like so that, wait a it's like, I thought it was a Delta dartboard. Why, how, why are you switching? You're confusing me. I don't. I, I can't handle this, guys. It's like that. It's like that game at the fair, you know, where you have to use the BB gun to get rid of the star, and it's impossible to do. Yeah, that's that's United for me. Um, <laughs> I think that's a show, though, guys. Um, yeah, unless you guys have anything else you want to talk about. I think I we could save the last few bits for uh, our Patreon listeners. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about some aircraft values. So the dog's telling me to get off. Um, so, yeah, to, you, to our listeners, you can find us on Twitter at dots lines, more dots, more lines dot com. Leave us a comment. Leave us a tweet. Love to hear from you. Uh, until next time, happy travels. Take care. See you later.